Welcome to the Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the January 2023 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Daniel Kim. Hello, my name is Jacob Knittel, and I am a second-year medical student at Creighton University School of Medicine, Phoenix Regional Campus. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Racial and Ethnic Disparities Among Participants in Hepatocellular Carcinoma Clinical Studies Evaluating Transarterial Therapies by Garg and colleagues. Purpose, to evaluate the racial and ethnic representation of transarterial therapy for hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, clinical trials in the United States. Materials and Methods The clinicaltrials.gov database was examined to identify all completed studies with transarterial therapies for the management of HCC in the United States and extract information about the observed number of participants for each racial and ethnic group based on the Office of Management and Budget Definitions. The expected number of participants was calculated by multiplying the total number of participants in a trial with the U.S. population HCC-based proportion for each group. The effects of the study phase, funding source, number of centers involved in the study, and the location of the participating center on racial and ethnic distribution were explored. Results 79 relevant studies were identified, of which 34.2% and 22.8% reported ethnic and race characteristics, respectively. 81% of study participants were white by ethnicity, and 93% identified as not Hispanic or Latino by race. In terms of observed to expected ratios by race and ethnicity in all trials, white and not Hispanic or Latino participants were overrepresented with a ratio of 1.22 and 1.33, respectively and all other racial and ethnic groups were underrepresented. The enrollment of African-Americans and Asian-Americans varied by the study phase, and a higher enrollment of African-Americans was noted in the National Institutes of Health funded and multi-center studies. Conclusions. This cross-sectional study demonstrates that in HCC transarterial therapy clinical trials, racial and ethnic minorities were underrepresented and the majority of the studies identified failed to report this demographic information. Hello, my name is Alexander Ziskin and I'm a third year medical student at Eastern Virginia Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled, Comparison of Bolus versus Stool Syringe Administration Systems in Glass Yttrium 90 Microsphere Deposition in an In Vitro Microvascular Hepatic Tumor Model by Miller and colleagues. Purpose, to utilize an in vitro microvascular hepatic tumor model to compare the deposition characteristics of glass yttrium 90 microspheres using the dual syringe and traditional bolus administration methods. Materials and methods. The microvascular tumor model represented a 3.5 centimeter tumor in a 1,400 cubic centimeter liver with a total hepatic flow of 160 milliliters per minute and was dynamically perfused. A microcatheter was placed in a 2mm artery feeding the tumor model and two additional non-target arteries. Glass microspheres with a diameter of 20 to 30 microns 
were administered using two methods, a dual syringe delivery at a concentration of 50 milligrams per milliliter in either a single continuous two milliliter infusion or two one milliliter infusions and a bolus delivery of 100 milligrams of microspheres in a single three milliliter infusion. Results. Overall, the degree of on-target deposition of the microspheres was 85% with a standard deviation of 11%, with no significant differences between the administration methods. Although the distal penetration into the tumor arterioles was approximately 50 millimeters for all the cases, the distal peak particle counts were significantly higher for the dual syringe delivery case, with approximately 5 by 105 microspheres achieving distal deposition versus 2 by 105 for the bolus delivery case. This resulted in significantly higher deposition uniformity within the tumor model. Conclusions The use of this new in vitro microvascular hepatic tumor model demonstrated that the administration method can affect the deposition of yttrium-90 microspheres within a tumor. With greater distal deposition and more uniform tumor coverage, when the microspheres are delivered at consistent concentrations using a dual syringe delivery device, the bolus delivery administration method was associated with less favorable deposition characteristics of the microspheres. Hello, my name is Anna Hu, and I am a second-year medical student at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I will be reading the abstract titled, Salvage Cryoablation for Local Recurrences of Thyroid Cancer, Inseparable from the Trachea and Neurovascular Structures, by SAG and colleagues. Purpose. To demonstrate safety, feasibility, and effectiveness of cryoablation of recurrent papillary thyroid cancer ineligible for reoperation because of scarring, eligible for focal ablation as defined within 2015 American Thyroid Association Guidelines Sections C16 and C17. Materials and Methods With multidisciplinary consensus, Cryoablation was performed with curative intent for 15 tumors and 10 patients between January 2019 and July 2021. Demographics, procedural details, and serial post-procedural imaging findings were analyzed. Results. The mean age was 72 and a half years, and 80% of the patients were women. The tumors, which had a mean size of 16 millimeters in a range of 9 to 29 millimeters, received one session of cryoablation with 100% technical success. The mean and median post-cryoablation tumor volumetric involution rates were 88% and 99% respectively, with 9 of 15 tumors involuting completely or down to the scar and 6 involuting partially at the end of the study period. Tumor size did not increase after cryoablation, as shown by a 0% local progression rate. All tumors abutted the trachea, skin, and or vascular structures, and hydrodissection failed in all cases because of scarring. The major adverse event rate was 20%, with two cases of voice change and one case of Horner syndrome, all resolved at six months with no permanent sequelae. No vascular, tracheal, dermal, or infectious adverse events occurred during a mean follow-up of 242 days. One patient died at 386 days after cryoablation because of unrelated cholangiocarcinoma. Conclusions Cryoablation of local recurrences of papillary thyroid cancer abutting the trachea and or neurovascular structures in the setting of hydrodissection failure because of scarring yielded a mean volumetric involution of 80%, primary efficacy of 60%, and objective response rate of 100%, with no local recurrences or permanent complications during a mean follow-up of 242 days.
the secondary efficacy and longer term outcomes remain forthcoming. Hello, my name is Sean Tengi, and I'm a fourth year medical student at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. I will be reading the abstract titled Clinical Outcomes of Transarterial Embolization for Chronic Achilles Tendinopathy Refractory to Conservative Treatment, a pilot study by Park and colleagues. Purpose to evaluate the effectiveness and safety of transarterial embolization for chronic Achilles tendinopathy refractory to conservative treatment. Materials and methods. This retrospective study included 20 patients with a mean age of 30.3 years who received transarterial embolization using imipenem and psilostatin sodium for refractory chronic Achilles tendinopathy from May 2019 to April 2021. Nine patients had bilateral involvement. A total of 29 procedures were performed. Eight were for non-athletes and 21 were for athletes. If feasible, embolization was performed superselectively of the arterial branch demonstrating hypervascularity, early venous drainage, and or supplying the pain site noted using a radio-opaque marker. The visual analog scale with a score of 0 to 10 was used to assess pain symptoms at baseline and during the follow-up period. Clinical success was defined as a decrease of greater than 50% in the visual analog scale score at 6 months when compared with baseline. Results. In 25 or 86.2% of 29 procedures, clinical success was achieved Significant decreases in the visual analog scale scores were noted at one day, one week, one month, three months, and six months post-op, all with a p-value less than 0.01. For the 19 patients available for the 12-month follow-ups, the mean visual analog scale score significantly decreased from 6.84 at baseline to 2 at 12 months with a p-value less than 0.01. For the six patients available for the 24-month follow-ups, the mean visual analog scale score significantly decreased from 7.33 at baseline to 1.17 at 24 months, with a p-value less than 0.01. No serious adverse events were observed during follow-up. Conclusions. Transarterial embolization may alleviate pain for patients with chronic Achilles tendinopathy refractory to the conservative treatment with a low risk of adverse events. Hello, my name is Eric Zhuang, and I am a second year medical student at Creighton University School of Medicine, Phoenix Regional Campus. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Intra-Articular Injection of Bone Marrow Concentrate for Treatment of Patellofemoral Osteoarthritis, Preliminary Results Utilizing an Ultrasound-Guided Marrow Harvesting Technique by Sylvester and colleagues. Purpose, to assess the effectiveness of intra-articular injection of bone marrow concentrate, or BMC, under ultrasound guidance in the treatment of patellofemoral osteoarthritis, or OA, with clinical and volumetric magnetic resonance imaging follow-up. Materials and methods. This retrospective study included 96 consecutive patients referred for ultrasound-guided intra-articular injection of BMC for symptomatic patellofemoral OA, for which conservative treatment had failed. A control group of 21 patients with symptomatic patellofemoral OA was included for comparison data on International NIC Documentation Committee, or IKDC, Visual Analog Scale, or VAS, and Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, or WOMEC, scores as well as volumetric MR imaging were collected before and 12 months after injection 
and results were compared. Results. No technical adverse events were noted during bone marrow aspiration, BMC preparation, or intra-articular injection of BMC. No clinical adverse events were reported during long-term follow-up. All mean scores improved between baseline and 12 months after intra-articular injection of BMC, as the VA score improved from 5.5 to 3.6, the Womack score improving from 36.8 to 22.2, and the IKDC score improving from 41.8 to 58.2. MR imaging at one year of follow-up after BMC treatment showed no statistically significant difference in highland cartilage volume compared with that at the baseline, suggesting stabilization of the cartilage degradation process. In contrast, a group of untreated patients showed a significant decrease in the cartilage volume, corresponding to a cartilage loss of 6.9%. Conclusions, results suggest that intra-articular injection of BMC under ultrasound guidance could be a promising option for the treatment of symptomatic patellofemoral OA and could promote the preservation of healthy residual cartilage volume. Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Wajay, and I am a medical student at Chicago Medical School at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. I will be reading the abstract titled, Percutaneous Radiofrequency Sympatholysis in the Treatment of Primary Palmer Hyperhidrosis, a Retrospective Case-Controlled Study of Rib-Based Anatomical Targeting by Wu and colleagues. Purpose, to compare the efficacy, adverse reactions, quality of life, and patient satisfaction of percutaneous radiofrequency thoracic sympatholysis at different rib-based anatomic targets for primary palmar hyperhidrosis, or PPHH. Materials and methods. Patients with PPHH were divided according to the target, namely the upper edge, group U, and lateral border, group L, of the fourth rib. There were 30 patients and 60 cases in each group. The Hyperhidrosis Disease Severity Scale, or HDSS, and Dermatology Life Quality Index, or DLQI, were assessed. Results. From before radiofrequency sympatholysis to 12 months after, the proportion of patients with HDSS, grades 3 and 4, ranging from 100% to 26.7%, and the DLQI decreased significantly. At 3, 6, and 12 months after radiofrequency, the HDSS grades were better in group L than in group U. At 6 and 12 months after radiofrequency, the DLQI in group L was lower than that in group U, and at 1, 6, and 12 months after radiofrequency, patient satisfaction was higher than that in group U. Adverse events were mild. Eight patients demonstrated compensatory hyperhidrosis at 12 months after radiofrequency, and there was no difference between the two groups. Neuralgia and pneumothorax also did not differ. Conclusions. Radiofrequency sympatholysis targeting the lateral border of the fourth rib had higher efficacy, better quality of life, and higher patient satisfaction. Hello, my name is Andrew Hahn, and I am a third-year medical student at Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I will be reading the abstract titled, Unplanned 30-day readmissions after management of submassive and massive acute pulmonary embolism, catheter-directed versus systemic thrombolysis by Wahid and colleagues. Purpose, to compare 30-day readmission and in-hospital outcomes from the nationwide readmissions database for catheter-directed thrombolysis, or CDT, 
versus systemic intravenous thrombolysis, or IVT, as treatments for acute submassive or massive pulmonary embolism, or PE. Materials and Methods The nationwide readmissions database was queried from 2016 to 2019 for adult patients with non-septic acute PE who underwent IVT or CDT. Massive PE was distinguished from submassive PE if patients had concurrent ICD-10 codes corresponding to mechanical ventilation, vasopressors, or shock. Propensity score match analysis was conducted to infer the associations of CDT versus IVT in unplanned 30-day readmissions, non-routine discharge, gastrointestinal bleeding, and intracranial hemorrhage. These results are demonstrated as average treatment effects of IVT compared with those of CDT. Results. A total of 37,116 patients with acute PE were studied. 18,702, or 50.3%, underwent CDT, and 18,414, or 49.7%, underwent IVT. A total of 2,083, or 11.1%, and 3,423, or 18.6%, were massive PEs in the two groups, respectively. The average treatment effect of IVT was higher than that of CDT regarding unplanned 30-day readmissions, gastrointestinal bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage, and non-routine discharge. The subgroup analysis of patients with submassive PE demonstrated that IVT had a higher average treatment effect regarding unplanned 30-day readmission, gastrointestinal bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage, and non-routine discharge than CDT. Conclusions CDT had a lower likelihood of unplanned 30-day readmissions, including when stratified by a submassive PE subtype. Additionally, adverse events including intracranial hemorrhage and gastrointestinal bleeding were more likely among patients who received IVT than among those who received CDT. We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. My name is Daniel Kim. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the January 2023 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.